Join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter gives us this letter with a theme of calling us to be followers of Jesus Christ, even in the face of hostility, knowing that we are grounded and steadied by grace. His point throughout the letter is that our lives as Christians should be different from the non-Christian. We should look different. We're pilgrims headed to our home. We're passing through this world. So we are the elect exiles. And the difference in our lives is clearly defined by the word holiness, which is the theme of the paragraph before us. You've heard our text read earlier, verses 13 to 21. We heard an echo of the need to be righteous as children of God in 1 John chapter 3. And now, let's consider this theme of holiness. Generally, when we try to define holiness, we start with sin. And we think that holiness is the opposite of sin. It's really good versus really bad. But the word holiness is really a directional kind of word, a, a, a spatial word. It has to do with something other. So it, it's, it's about separation more than just moral rightness and wrongness, though that is the most common use. So in speaking of holiness, we could speak of the otherness of God or of our calling. So God is holy above all things. So he is other than all things. Nothing else is like him. Nothing else compares. He calls us to be holy which means he calls us apart from something else, the world. So we are the called out ones. We're different. We're foreigners. We're pilgrims. We're exiles. He wants us to be different. Our text begins with the word, therefore. It's a word that joins two thoughts. There's an observation and then some kind of conclusion. So why is therefore right here? As you read your Bible, you should draw on the old interpretive tool of asking, when you see the word therefore, you ask what? What is it? Therefore. Pretty corny, huh? But helpful. That way you don't skim right past it. So you stop and you think that word is a chain. It connects two things. I've got to get them both if I'm going to follow the argument. So let's find the observation. It's there in the opening paragraph, verses 3 through 9. The observation is, you've been born again to a living hope. Paraphrased as, you have an inheritance secure in heaven for you, and you are secure all the way to that inheritance. Paraphrased as, you've been given salvation. That's the observation. You're a child of God. You've been saved. You belong to him. We took a time out last week to consider that footnote, that spiritual, sanctified, inspired footnote, verses 10 through 12, where we just take a moment and just marvel at our salvation. But now the argument continues with the therefore. So we're picking up, opening paragraph, the observations. We have an inheritance. We've been born again. We're saved. 
That is joined to the conclusion here in verses 13 through 21. And really a conclusion that unfolds in the rest of the letter. But the conclusion in one word is holiness. You've been saved, so be holy. You've been called out, so live differently than the world. You belong to God, so look like you do. You've been born again to an inheritance. You've been saved, therefore be holy. So that's our big idea. Holiness is the logical conclusion of a living hope. If you have hope in you of eternal life, then I had better see holiness flowing out of your life. It's, it's the logical, biblical conclusion of being born again. Therefore, be holy. How do we arrive at this conclusion? In our study this morning, I think the Bible makes four arguments for our holiness. Four arguments to support this big idea that holiness really is the logical conclusion of being born again to a living hope. So we need to follow the argument and then establish that really our premise is true. Holiness really is the conclusion. It really is the logical response of a life that has been born again. Now, to come up with these arguments, our text highlights three commands. So, imperatives. You have to do this. Those are found in verse 13. Set your hope fully on grace. Verse 15. Be holy in all your conduct. And verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear. You say, wait a minute, three commands, but you had four arguments. Well, that last command has two arguments attached to it. You'll see that as we get there. Let's begin in verse 13 with this first command of setting your hope fully on grace. We have our word, therefore. So now he's unfolding the conclusion, what it should mean if you say you're born again. Preparing your minds for action And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Argument number one. Since you believe, Christ will return. Since you believe that, we we could say if. It's really, in some of the conditional language of the Bible, they're synonymous. If. You believe Christ will return, but because we're speaking of a certainty, we would say since. Since you believe that Christ will return, get busy with kingdom work. Since you believe Christ will return, get busy with kingdom work. We think of Jesus' parable of the master of the house going away and leaving the tasks behind, and the servants should be found doing those things when he returns. Peter is now fleshing that out in his teaching. If we're sure of the day when Christ will be revealed and the fullness and the victorious grace of God will be revealed on that day, then our lives should reflect that reality in lives of holiness now. Kingdom work. Since you believe Christ will return... Back up from there, 
and now get busy with kingdom work. In 1989, Stephen Covey published his book, Seven Highlights of Highly Effective People. He's a Mormon, studied successful people, and found that in popular leadership materials, the most recent 50 years at the time he wrote, it was all about personality, you know, how to win friends and influence people, how to wear a power tie, and all these kind of techniques of leadership. He says you study the first 150 years of American writings about leadership, and it was all about character. So here's a Mormon, and he's trying to get to some kind of truth about what really defines success, and he gives us what he calls seven habits. I think when you look at them closely, you find that they're really biblical roots to each of these truths. It's God's truth. He stumbled on it as a Mormon, packaged it in a book, but the reality is one of his habits is right here in our verse this morning. One of his habits was begin with the end in mind. And he uses the analogy of what good is it to, to plow through life and to climb the ladder of life only to get to the end and realize the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. You should have started with the end in mind. Peter here is saying Jesus Christ will be revealed to us in a brilliant display of his victorious grace fulfilling his promise that he would lead us as exiles all the way home. And he's going to meet us to make sure he, he walks us right into the doors of home. If we know that that is the end, the revelation of Jesus Christ, then what should we be doing now? Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anchor yourself to that reality. But how do we do that? It's not easy. Are you really thinking of the end? Your full realization of grace when your faith is made sight and Jesus returns? Are you really thinking of that when you're bickering with your spouse? No, you see, we're not holy because we don't remember the reality that Christ is coming back to fulfill his promise to lead us all the way home. Are you really thinking of grace when you're angry and frustrated with your kids? Are we really thinking of Christ's victory? Ultimately displayed at his coming, but evidenced even now in his advancing kingdom when we're complaining about the injustice at work or the inconvenience of traffic, the hassles of my schedule being interrupted. You see, here's the link to holiness. When we aren't intentionally thinking of where holiness is leading us, I'm doing this because I know Christ is coming back. I'm living differently because I belong to him. When we aren't intentionally thinking of where holiness is leading us, we lose heart for being holy. The text gives us two ways to set our hope fully on that future day of grace and victory. How do I keep this in mind so that I'll live holy now? He gives us these two phrases in verse 13. First, preparing your minds for action. That's probably a helpful translation. 
when I grew up with the New King James or the King James Bible, it was gird up the loins of your mind. And most of you are like, uh, not sure what that means. Well, it's actually not too hard to understand. Picture the, the, the garb of Bible times. Now, now, if you didn't have flannel graphs in your Sunday school growing up, you might be at a loss here. You're thinking, I don't know what they wore. Well, I do, because I saw the flannel graphs, right? And everybody had a robe. Actually, everybody was the same person. Peter was Moses, and Moses was, you know, John, and just put him up there again each week. But they had these robes on, and, and obviously, if you're in a hurry... You'd want to keep those robes off your sandals. Or if you're working, and let's say you're out there hoeing the field, you don't want to be traipsing on the edge of your garment there. So you'd, you'd, you'd kind of gather it up and, and tuck it into a belt that you wore. And so gird up the loins of your mind would be this expression of, hey, let's get ready for action here. Don't be encumbered. Don't be bogged down by what you're wearing. We might use the expression in our day, hey, let's roll up our sleeves. Your boss could say that when you sit down at a meeting, and he doesn't mean roll up your sleeves literally. He means, all right, let's get to work. Enough of the small talk. Put that aside. Let's get to it. So in Exodus chapter 14, or Exodus 12, rather, God has unfolded the first Passover. Find a spotless lamb. It'll take the place of the firstborn who is going to die because of the sin of the land. That lamb could die. You can put its blood on the post of your house, and that'll be a sign for the Spirit of God to pass over. Inside the house, you're going to partake of that lamb. You're going you're to eat it, the partaking. So that's like what we do at, at the Lord's table. We partake of the elements to show, yes, I believe this. I'm receiving this. I'm putting my faith in this plan. They were to partake of that lamb, but the instructions were to eat the dinner with belt fastened, with sandals on, and with staff in hand. So picture loading up your family for vacation, and everybody has their pillow and their backpack of their little stuff for their seat, their suitcase, their snack bag. God is telling the people of Israel... Have all that on. Don't, don't have it sitting back in your bedroom. No, put your backpack on, put your belt on, tuck your robes into it, because this thing about redemption is an active thing. It's a call to motion, to do something. There's an energy about holiness. It is intentionally active. Peter's point in saying prepare your minds for action is the call to holiness means do something. Be different than the world, but do something. You've been called to it, to a life of holiness. He adds another description of how to set your hope fully on grace. And he says, being sober-minded. So these are Verb forms, but they're not commands or verbs. They're simply describing how to set your mind fully on grace. Do it by preparing your mind for action. Do it by being sober-minded. Be clear-headed. Be watchful. 
Be under control so that you're not distracted by everything and not really doing the main thing. It's the opposite of being drunk. We recognize the word sober as the opposite of drunk, out of control, unclear, uncertain, incoherent, lacking direction, lacking discernment. So everything opposite of that is how you set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed when Christ comes back in such a way that it will produce holiness today. Be sober-minded. In other words, get serious about the Christian life. Not to the ultimate extinction of anything fun, anything entertaining, anything restful, but just do the Christian life with a seriousness that recognizes I must be different than the unbeliever. I've been given new life. I have a new nature. I belong to God. Be sober-minded. Since you believe Christ will return, the revelation of Jesus Christ, set your mind fully on grace. By preparing your minds for action, by being sober-minded, by being a Christian who understands I have a calling, a purpose, by hearing Jesus' simple words when he says, you have all these roles to do, you're, you're in the midst of life and you have all kinds of concerns and anxieties, but seek First, the kingdom of God. That's Peter's first argument. Since you know Christ will return, get busy with kingdom work. Set your mind to it. Look at the second argument for holiness. Number two, since you are children of God, show the family resemblance. Verse 14, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and he quotes God's word to the people of Israel in Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. As obedient children, literally as children birthed of obedience... Your parents are obedience, he's saying. You belong to righteousness. Read Romans chapter 6 and read how now you belong to righteousness. Your slaves are servants of righteousness. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but just as God who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. Children of obedience. It's a beautiful and yet a precise contrast to Ephesians 2. Where as sinners we are called sons of disobedience. Peter says you're different now. You're no longer a son of disobedience. You are children of obedience. Since that is true. Show the family resemblance. Just as your heavenly father, children, just as your father who called you is holy, you be holy. Have you ever been told you look like your parents? Or you act like them? Or you talk like them? It's the family resemblance. 
Verse 14, A, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't act like you did before you were a Christian. Instead, be holy like your father is holy. Peter quotes the Old Testament, Leviticus, multiple places in Leviticus. God uses this expression, this call to holiness. But he was reminding the people then that they were set apart. And Peter's reminding the church, you are that people. They were a picture of what you are now. So you are set apart. He'll tell us over in chapter 2. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's that set-apart nation, a people for his own possession. You're set apart, you're different, you're a pilgrim passing through. And so the conclusion is, in all of your conduct, be holy. All of your conduct, all of your living, all of your behavior this week, be different, be holy. In your conduct of being an employee this week, be holy. In your conduct of being a neighbor this week, be holy. He said, all your conduct, in your your conduct of filing your taxes this week, be holy. In your conduct of entertainment consuming, be holy. Listen to podcasts based on the reality that you are different than the world. Sing along with songs based on the fact that you're different than the world. Drive in a way that's different in all of your conduct, he says. Somehow this is all-inclusive, that the transformation of being born again to a living hope is, is so dramatic that all of your conduct can be lived in the imitation of the holiness of God. As a husband, be holy in your conduct, the way you treat your wife, the way you lead your family as a wife. Shop and cook and strive to provide for your family and serve your husband and do whatever work God's called you to do in a way that's holy. As a young adult, as a teenager, as a six-year-old here, everything you do this week, God is requiring that it be done in holiness. So what needs to change in your life so that you can say all of my conduct is holy? Usually we don't like to say universal statements like that about our spirituality because it just sounds like you're a Pharisee or something. But let me ask you, are you more comfortable saying you're just disobedient to the command of Scripture to be holy in all your conduct? I understand the humility that says that we're not perfect. We remind ourselves every week with a confession uh, of sin that we need God's grace. But let's hear the command, be holy in all of your conduct and make every effort to do so this week. That's Peter's call to pilgrims and exiles You're going to be different than the world. It's going to be because you're holy. You're trying to look like your father, your heavenly father. Now look at verse 17 for the third command. Conduct yourselves 
with fear throughout the time of your exile. To understand this third argument, I want us to first look at what comes before, the beginning of the verse. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Here's the argument. Since God evaluates your choices, honor him with the time he gives you. If it's true that you're calling on God as your father, but that same God is also the impartial judge who evaluates every man's deeds. If that is true, then, can, or verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout this time of your exile. In whatever time God has given you, live in such a way that you're reflecting the knowledge that God will judge every choice I make, that every idle word that I speak will be brought into account. Since God evaluates your choices, honor him with the time he gives you. I say honor from that word fear. It could be understood as respect or honor or reverence. You might not tremble and be scared to death of your father or of your boss or of the policeman. But there is a way to show respect and honor to that position of authority. And so we honor the father, we honor the judge with our conduct as pilgrims in an exile. Be holy, Peter says, because God has an opinion about how you live your life of pilgrimage. God's going to have an opinion about your Monday schedule, about your attitudes throughout the day, about what you prioritized. God cares about that, and not just casually, but as the rightful judge, he'll evaluate whether that was done with pure motive or not. He's the judge of all the earth. In last Saturday's youth group, we talked about spending our time wisely. We're to redeem the time, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. To make sure we snatch up every moment of it and use it rightly. From Ligonier Ministries, Table Talk Magazine had a column entitled, Right Now Counts Forever. And we like to think, but we can take timeouts from that. And I can do this, and, and it doesn't have any effect on eternity. But the reality is, Peter here is saying, no, right now counts forever. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So let me ask you this. How long is your time of exile? When is it over? Well, we all know we don't know. We don't know if, if we live tomorrow. We don't know if we survive the week. We don't know if we live to be elderly and have our kids and grandkids taking care of us and driving us to church because we can't see anymore. We don't know the time of our exile. And so all we have to go on is conduct yourselves with honor 
with fear, remembering that right now really does count forever, that God does have an opinion, that he will evaluate my efforts at holiness, that he's going to tell me what he thinks about my desire to look like Jesus Christ. And he'll evaluate if it was pretty lackluster at times. Or if that seemed to be a consuming passion to get it right, to live and to think and to serve and to uh, demonstrate humility as Christ did. Your choice is this week to either conform to the world or to conform to Christ will be judged by our Heavenly Father. So since God evaluates your choices, honor him with the time that he gives you. Now the same command, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of the exile, carries over into our fourth argument. But instead of looking at what comes before, God's the the judge of our deeds, let's see what comes after the command. Because it too describes how we conduct ourselves with fear. Verse 18, by knowing that you were ransomed. So that command, conduct yourselves with honor, is influenced by the first phrase, if you call on God as father and he's also the judge, then live a certain way. Now he's saying live a certain way knowing that you have been ransomed. So this one command kind of has two arguments to it. The accountability of holiness before God and now this motivation to holiness, knowing that you were ransomed. That word showed up twice in our singing this morning. One of them was on purpose. As I was through the text in the week, kind of running through the database of songs in my head, and there's that ransom that stands out, and the phrase stood out. Then I just have to remember the whole verse and what song that is. The other one was dumb luck if you're thinking of me, or divine providence if you're thinking a little bigger. Uh, But the word ransom we sang twice. And here Peter is saying, listen, I know I'm asking a lot of you. You're already the outsider. The world thinks you're nuts. They don't understand you. They may even get in your way. They may even come after you. And here I am telling you, conduct yourselves with honor. You got to be holy. So here's some motivation. Remember that you were rescued. Remember that you were ransomed. Remember somebody paid an enormous price to get you back. Flipping through my trivia calendar at home, we like a little Jeopardy calendar or this other fun fact calendar, and one of them was recently that Charlie Chaplin died back in the 70s, and gravediggers dug up his body and demanded a $600,000 ransom. And Mrs. Chaplin blew them off and didn't pay it. Never heard that story. But there was ransom showing up again in my week in a unique little circumstance. They wanted an enormous price paid to get something back. And the Bible uses this word ransom for a price that was paid, the sinless life of Jesus Christ for the redemption of the souls of God's people. Peter says, knowing 
that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Knowing that, and knowing the price that was paid, not perishable things like silver and gold, but the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, what Peter is doing here is is calling us back to to all these, uh, I call them like almost buzzwords. Each one resonates and makes us think of something. So it's all this language of the gospel, but it lines up with so much Old Testament imagery. He says, you were ransomed, bought with a price. That's gospel talk. From what you once were, sinners trapped in futility, ignorance. He speaks of atonement, shed blood, a theme throughout the Old Testament. The priesthood of the Old Testament was just a bloody mess. Priestly robes constantly stained with blood. We picture, you know, Aaron in his regal priestly robe and hat and wearing the breastplate with the thummim and umum. And yes, there was an outfit that looked pretty nice, but the regular garb of the priest was the, the, the linen robe of white meeting the people at the gate of the tabernacle or temple and taking their sacrifice to the altar and slitting its throat and catching blood in basins and carving up that sacrifice. It, it was the work of a butcher at the butcher shop. So when Peter says, you were purchased with precious blood, the Jews in the audience would know the history well. The Gentiles would be learning from God's word and from illustrations like the atonement that Noah was asked to put on the ark. And that Hebrew word atonement there was pitch to cover the ark of safety. They were atoned for. So atonement is here in Peter's language. And then he talks substitution, the death of the spotless lamb. He references eternity past according to the predetermined plan of God before the foundation of the world. But he speaks of the love of God and demonstrating his love through Christ and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us when he says, it's now revealed for your sake. He speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He speaks of the ascension and glory of the risen Christ, God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. All of this gospel language One that calls sinners to God's plan of salvation. There it is. Here's the pillars of how God saves. But also to the church. To look back and to see what he told us in verses 10 through 12. From the Old Testament right on through the New Testament. The Holy Spirit of God was revealing this message for you to hear. The prophets didn't even benefit the way you do. And the Holy Spirit, it says, made it known to them that they weren't serving themselves. They were serving you to know the fullness of this picture of being ransomed by God through Jesus Christ.
If Peter wants you to live holy, he's leaning hard here into this third argument or this fourth argument. And he's telling us, listen, since you were ransomed at so great a cost, then you should trust God with all of life's issues. You can be holy no matter what. You say, but if I do this, I could be fired. Or if I do this, you know, people are going to stay. If I do this, I could lose this relationship with my girlfriend. If I do this, Peter says, stop doing all the calculations of what you might lose. And instead, remember how much was paid so that you could be holy. How much have you gained in Jesus Christ? Suddenly you'll have a motivation for holiness. So think of it this way. Peter would argue every time you sin, every time you willfully look at pornography, every time you willfully stew in your fear of the uncertain future, every time you're envious of what somebody else has, every time you sin, you're saying, enough of Christ crucified. I want to do what I want to do. Enough of precious blood shed for the salvation of my soul. I want a moment of pleasure. Enough of the power of the resurrection and the glory of Christ seated at the right hand of the throne of God, pouring out the Holy Spirit and his grace on my life. I want to be vindicated. I want people to serve me. Sin gets really ugly. And holiness gets really attractive when you remember that the son was crushed to please the father and his pleasure was you. You being made righteous and brought into fellowship with him. Since you were ransomed at great cost, trust God with all of life's issues. Where do we get the ending of that? Look at the end of verse 21. All this gospel truth is designed to cause you to anchor your faith and hope in God. Remember verse 3, you were born again to a living hope. Now he says, conduct yourselves in honor, knowing all the story of the gospel, knowing that Christ has been raised and is seated in glory. All this was so that your faith and hope are in God. Right now, Peter says, your faith and your hope are in God. Now, that might mean you're just trusting God to get through a hectic week. For others, it means their city was bombed and they're supposed to follow evacuation routes, but they really don't even know if that will be safe. If you read the story in the email of the seminary student helping people evacuate and the very evacuation path is bombed and he's with his Savior. Trust God with all the issues of life. You might be frustrated with potty training. You've had it up to here and you're being tempted to not walk in the spirit. You don't have to compare that to Ukraine. That's where you are. And that's where God is saying right now, where you are, your faith and your hope should be in God. Be holy right there. God calls you to evacuate your homeland in the midst of war. Do that in faith and hope. But while our eyes are over there, remember God's called us here to do something. And it's our life of pilgrimage here, and we're to do it in faith and in hope. 
because that's what we were born to in verse 3. Peter's going to keep coming back to the beginning. You're born again to a living hope. You're different. You've got an inheritance. You're a pilgrim. So while you live this pilgrim journey, be different. What do you need to trust God with this week? Holiness is the logical conclusion of a living hope. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, articulates these arguments. Since you believe Christ will return, get busy with the kingdom work. Be holy. Since you are children of God, show that family resemblance. Be holy. Since God evaluates your choices, honor him with whatever time he gives you. Be holy. And since you were ransomed at so great a cost, trust God with all of life's issues. Be holy. Romans 8 said, If God spared not his own son, but gave him up for you, how will he not freely give us all things? You can trust him. If you really are a Christian... Peter says, you will live a holy life. It's the logical conclusion. You'll be very different from the world and very much like Jesus. Heavenly Father, the theme of holiness is not foreign to us, but perhaps the pervasive consciousness of holiness is. So by your Holy Spirit, and our yielding to him, would you convict us of anything that doesn't measure up to your standard of holiness? Would you show us the perfection of Christ, his righteousness, his sufficiency, so that we would never doubt that the holy life is the best way to go about living our lives? Lord, bring some kind of seriousness to our lives, not in some somber, stoic kind of living, but just the reality of our lives being short. This little time of exile, the reality of Christ's sacrifice being great, the reality of you being holy, And awaken us to what it would look like to be obedient to these commands that we've seen this morning. And as you hear and answer these prayers, we know our lives will be more and more to your glory. And that sounds good to us. And so, have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.